Welcome back for part two of the Science Talk podcast with Mary Roach, author of the new book, Packing for Mars. I'm still Steve Mursky. After her session with an audience, which you heard in part one, Mary and I found a quiet corner of the Upper West Side Barnes & Noble and discussed further how bad it is to be in space. Jupiter and Mars. Hi, Mary. <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> Just coincidentally, a couple of weeks ago, I watched 2001. Yes. And even before reading your book, I remember thinking, the space station there, the, the ship they're on, it's so clean. It's so pristine. And they're, they're shaved. They look all together. It's nothing like that in space, right? It's not. No. Ab- yeah. And I know because I found those papers from the uh, space cabin simulator studies where they brought in the students and they didn't let them bathe for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is similar. Gemini 7, like I was talking about out there, restricted hygiene mission. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got your – it's floating everywhere too, you know. You're, when it, you say it's floating, what's oh, it, it? It, well, it could be uh, It could be crumbs. It could be dandruff. It could be escapees. Escapees. <laughs> yeah, escapees. Uh, on the shuttle, they have the this, the toilet. Um, it's very cold in there, and all the, the material um, freezes and tends to bounce around off the sides, and sometimes, because it's zero gravity, kind of makes its way back up out of the toilet. If you're not, That's why there's a rear-view mirror, and you check. Whoops, you check. That was not the rear-view mirror. That was. <laughs> I just broke the shuttle <laughs> toilet. Um, you, you would check to make sure there was no but no little bits escaping. And so this it is could referred be, to as popcorn. Oh, actually, fe- that is fecal popcorning. When when you have the little pieces, and the and the piece itself in a, is an escapee. I guess you could call it fecal popcorn, but they don't. It's just a verb. Oh, I see. Fecal popcorning, as far as I know, is a verb form and not a interesting a noun. Escapee we, is the noun. Escapee. We could spend the entire time here just talking about what it's like to try to defecate in space, right? Uh, I could fill an hour easily. I could. And, and also, and, and the testing and the pe- folks at NASA who make the simulants and the... I could go on and on. But we could talk about something mature if you really no, want to we be. don't want to do that. But, okay. I mean, it's it's like the worst locker room you could ever imagine being up in space, right? Oh, oh yeah. Well, the, but the, the good thing is, according to those space cabin simulator studies at Wright... Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, they found that after a week, the, the BO tends to, they said it reaches its maximal height. I love that BO had a height, you know, because I, and I thought, well, it could sort of take on characteristics like, you know, height and limbs and quills because it becomes just so. It becomes another presence. It becomes another presence. It really does. So it reaches its maximal height at seven to 10 days. Uh, and, and then you. Well, at a certain point, your nose kind of just says, I don't need to tell you about this anymore. Um, I think you get the point, and it kind of just says, forget about it. But There's when somebody a, new shows up. Somebody, yeah, right, 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 right. Which but, can yeah. happen on the space station. You'll get somebody who's just arrived. Yeah. So if, to them, it must be like oh, hitting yeah. a wall. Yeah, I asked, uh, I interviewed Jim Lovell, Captain Lovell, about, uh, I said, so when you came, when you, the capsule came down and those frogmen came and they opened the hatch, what was that like for them? And he said, he said, he goes, well, it was, yeah, it was, um, and then like his, you know, gentlemanly instincts took over. He said, it was quite different than the fresh ocean breezes outside. <laughs> but elsewhere, I saw him describe it as like living in a porta potty. Wow. Okay. That's unpleasant. Because they were using the fe- the dreaded fecal bag. 
which you, you, we, you it's it's a bag if you don't have a toilet in those capsules gemini apollo there was no toilet there was a bag right yeah so and, and there was some some smell no wasn't plus the bo wasn't there i think it was level uh, the guys just were naked most of the trip home? Oh, Lovell told me about it. It was Apollo 12. It wasn't actually his mission. He said, and this was because of um, moon dust, you know, the lunar regolith. Uh, that stuff clings. It's got a static charge because, uh, you know, on Earth there's the magnetic field, which wards off those charged particles. Well, not so on the moon. So all the dust, the regolith, it, it has, it's like, Stocks in the dryer, it kind of it would cling to everything, so they'd be filthy. They'd look like miners. They'd come back from, you know, their suits were just completely covered, and they get in and they track it into the capsule. And so apparently, their underwear and everything was just so filthy. Lovell said that they just stripped down and were naked halfway home from the moon. That's an amazing scene to contemplate. Yeah, it is a wonderful image. Couple of yeah, Lovell's kid because Lovell was one of you know Gemini Seven where they were seeing you know how can two men stand to wear spacesuits twenty four seven for two weeks? What will it do to their skin? And in, in, in the end, they did not. They did. They took the suits off. They were just so uncomfortable. And Lovell said that you know he took his suit off first, and he said, and of course they have the long johns on underneath. He said his son would go around saying, "Dad orbited the Earth in his underwear." <laughs> well, your your clothes actually start to fall apart. That's what happened to the the students, the, the volunteers in that space cabin simulator. The verb that they used was decompose, uh, because the, uh, one of the things they learned that was kind of cool is that your skin actually, if you're wearing clothing, your skin stays relatively clean because the clothing the clothing absorbs the grease and the scurf and the skin and the yuck. And they figured this out. I love how they figured it out. When these volunteers came out, they stood them in a tub. First, they took their clothes and they put it in a tub of water. And then they stood these guys in a tub of water and they like sprayed them down. And then they took the two tubs of water and uh, almost, I think it was 90 something percent of the crud was um, in the clothes water. You know, the, the body actually had stayed fairly clean up right. to, you know, up to a point. Then the clothes completely get saturated and decompose and, and then it builds up on your skin. Right. But so, I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. If you wear clothes every day and you change those clothes, you're, you're sort of giving yourself a, yeah. a shower every day just with the clothes. It's a clothing shower. A clothing yeah. shower. Yeah. Like, remember you hear, oh, there's all these books written about, uh, I think it's re- I guess Renaissance era hygiene where they mm-hmm. they know they would bathe once a year. Yeah, you yeah. quote Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth. In the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. I bathe once a month, whether I need it or not. She, she was, was like serious. the clean. She was the clean freak of her era. Right. But they um, they would change their undershirts once or twice a day. I mean, those who had undershirts to be changing into, you know, I mean, if you had some money, what you did is you you, you regularly changed your under chemise, and that was you know sort of rubbed off the crud because i used to think Gee, how could they stand each other i mean they must have been so filthy and they would wash their face their hands the things that didn't have clothing on them and mm-hmm. that, their feet their feet their face their hands and the rest of it didn't really get all that cruddy it's a time saver too <laughs> so you have a long-standing interest in dead bodies uh you know my 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 readers will sometimes say when are you going to do stiff too when are you so there's you know i i I do get some agitation for more cadavers but there are cadavers in this book yes and then yeah i yes and i i I felt that my readers would be excited if i if i pursued that um 
that study uh, that was going on at NASA. Talk a little bit about some of the really fascinating uses that cadavers are put to in in studies for for space missions, and you know maybe this will inspire some listeners to donate their bodies to yeah. uh, to science in this unusual way. Yeah, there there was a study going on at OSU, Ohio State University. Uh, at the Transportation Research Center, crash tests basically because Constellation, that tr- pro- program that has now is probably it's probably been tabled. Uh, we were going to go back to the moon and build a moon base. The capsule that was going to take us there, they were doing some splashdown tests because when you splash down, when you land on water, there's all kinds of variables. You know, could, the wave could be cresting, it could be knocked over. So they needed to know what force. You know, if they, if it lands this way, will the force you know knock the hard part of the suit into the arm and break the arm what's going to happen so they had done they were doing some cadaver tests where they would put a suit <laughs> not a full suit that would be almost impossible i mean it takes two hours for us for an astronaut to get dressed fully with all the parts uh two hours may be an exaggeration anyway they uh, had to put it was a suit simulator it was sort of the hard bits the rings you know the, the parts that move for the arms and then they muscle this cadaver into a uh, simu- simulated capsule, and then they apply um, force, three different axes, X, Y, Z, and then do an autopsy. So that's what they were doing. They're just to see, you know, what, well, what happened there is, is, did the bone break? You know, because uh, uh, you don't really know until you open them up what kind of damage. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, you could use a dummy, but if you really want to see what's going on, you, uh, you use a cadaver to a certain point. So some dead guy gets to uh, be an astronaut. But there's also, you have this great description. They, they took, I forget if it was rice or rice, mice or rats. You put them together, you get rice. Rice, yeah. Um, and they freeze-dried them while they were on these high... Uh, centrifuges. Centrifuges, high-revolution high centrifuges. Yes. So they were exposed to massive G-forces, and they would be instantly freeze-dried, and then they would examine the internal organs, and was, uh, yeah. stuff. nothing was where it should be. No. Oh, depending on which way they were facing, it was an unbelievable study. I mean, kind of gruesome, but yeah, if the, if it was the head was facing out, then all of the, you know, the organs were sort of piled up under the rib cage. You know, in, in a very bizarre manner. And then if it was, you know, if they're facing the other way, they were just, just really kind of shocking what the, those, uh, you know, what centrifugal force acceleration would do. Uh, and, uh, yeah, ingenious, though, the quick freeze technique, I think right. it was called, yeah. And what what did you say? Uh, let's not even discuss the testicles. I don't even <laughs> want to talk about the testicles. <laughs> Um, you say that w- actually one of the most beautiful things to see from this capsule is when they eject urine and it yes. kind of, th- you get this a golden ur- yeah. sparkle yeah. outside. Yeah, the urine dump. The urine dump was, uh, and there were a number of astronaut memoirs that mentioned this and how these fra- flash frozen droplets illuminated, um, would, it would look like this silvery snowstorm. And uh, I think three different astronauts mentioned how beautiful the urine dump was. Wow. Yeah. So do, do you think that we are actually going to go to Mars and have people arrive there who are still sane? <laughs> uh, yes, I think so. Uh, you know, there have been folks on space stations for a year. And, you know, what's another year? The other, the other thing, when you're on a space station for a year, you're dealing with tedium and boredom. And the fact that you're just going around in circles and nobody's going to really 
be all that excited about it when you get down. If you're going to Mars, I mean, you are going to be a global celebrity. You're, I mean, it, and, and it's the unknown and there's all this anticipation. And I think there'd just be so much to focus on that's positive that you, you probably... I, th I think that people will be fine psychologically. You hear about, oh, Earth out of view phenomenon, and when the, you lose sight of the Earth, suddenly that will change everything and you'll freak, freak out and, and, and go insane or start behaving in a way that doesn't fit with the morals of the Earth or something mm -hmm. like that. But I'm not so, I'm not so sure about that. I, I think and the astronauts are incredibly motivated people. Would, would you go? Hell no. <laughs> no, no. I... I I'd love to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. Send me to the moon for a couple of weeks. No, good lord, I'm not. I'm not one of those people. I wouldn't pass the psych test to begin with, <laughs> and I'm not very good at not showing my emotions. I mean, if I'm annoyed, people know that I'm annoyed. So why why this book? Why did you you know? Because it's a right. big investment when you decide to yeah, write a yeah. book. So why did you want to do this? Uh, because everything in it I found fa fascinating. I'm not, and I'm not really a space geek. I am a bit of, a, you know, I went to NASA for the, uh, I reported on the how they trained for spacewalks, the big neutral buoyancy tank. I loved that story. NASA was like the magical kingdom. There's just so much amazing, bizarre stuff to play with and to, to kind of learn about and, uh, just, just, and and just the oddness and surrealness of all the stuff that happens to the human body, and the indignities that astronauts face, and that stuff doesn't get it. You know, you read about it here and there, but um, I just, it's the stuff I would have wanted to read about, and there really wasn't a book that covered that stuff. So, you were so I, to so write I it. was forced to write it. I had no desire to. I had to. No, uh, yeah. Got anything else on the horizon? Um, when I get back about? from book tour, I will be working on another book. Yeah, not quite. It's a little larval. So it's about insects. <laughs> no. <laughs> I shouldn't use that word. People are going to think Mary Roach is writing about young insects now. Goes with the name. Yeah. Great to see you. Thanks for uh, doing this. Yeah, no problem. Great to see you too. Totally bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, one benefit of ever-increasing atmospheric CO2 levels is continued increased plant growth. Story two, obesity is becoming a national security issue, says a group of retired military officials, because it's limiting the availability of recruits fit enough to fight. Story 3. In 2011, Neptune will complete its first orbit around the Sun since it was identified as a planet by humans in 1846. And Story 4. A study of traffic safety in New York City found that of pedestrian fatalities associated with being hit by turning vehicles, three-quarters of the turns were left turns. 
Time's up. Story four is true. The study by New York City's transportation planners discovered that three quarters of turns resulting in accidents causing pedestrian deaths were left turns. I'm guessing it's because the left turner is dodging oncoming traffic and thus less aware of a pedestrian in the crosswalk. Story three is true. It takes Neptune 165 Earth years to make its own single spin around the sun. On August 20th, 2010, Neptune was in opposition. That is, it, us, and the sun were in a straight line. Nobody on Neptune or the sun noticed. And story two is true. A study by the group Mission Readiness, made up of former military officials, finds that too many of us are getting too fat to fight, and that the obesity epidemic has become a potential threat to national security. Poor educations and run-ins with the law are also disqualifying potential recruits. All of which means that story one about continuing increased plant growth, thanks to ever-rising atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, is totally bogus. Because a new study finds that rising temperatures were associated with drought that decreased worldwide plant growth in the last decade. The northern hemisphere did experience increases, but the southern hemisphere's losses more than made up for them. The study was published in the journal Science. I've been hearing some politicians and so-called policy advisors talking about how carbon dioxide is actually great. It's a nutrient. It's natural. So it can't be dangerous. They should watch the scene in the movie Apollo 13 where the astronauts are frantically trying to assemble a carbon dioxide collector before they die. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Mary Roach, author of Packing for Mars. When you're not reading that, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read John Matson's new article on the long-term plan for exoplanet research. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 